Hi, I'm Coy Atkins, and thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Nerds. Before we get started, I just want to invite you to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it at. Everywhere sort of has their own urban legend, whether it's an abandoned old house that's haunted or someone that sneaks around in the middle of the night. In McAllen, Texas, well, they're no different. And theirs dates back to the 1960s. And it goes something like this. A young woman went to a confession at a Catholic church. And she never left. This is the story of Irene Garza. Irene was born in 1934 in McAllen, Texas. It's a small town along the Mexico-Texas border. Her parents owned a dry cleaning business, and as the business grew, so did Irene's family. And by the time Irene was in high school, her family was able to afford to move out of a rougher part of the city and into a suburban area. Irene attended McAllen High School, where she was the first Latina to become a twirler and a drum major. When she graduated high school, she attended Pan American College. While in college in 1958, Irene was named Miss All-South Texas Sweetheart and the Homecoming Queen. After graduating college, Irene became a school teacher in McAllen. After being a teacher for a few years, she told a friend of hers that she felt like she was a shy person, but she was satisfied with her work and she was becoming more confident with who she was. And part of that confidence but it came from her religion. And Irene was Catholic and she took her faith very seriously. Irene was living with her parents at the time and on Saturday, April 16th, 1960, she told her mom and dad that she was going to the Sacred Heart Church for confession. When Nicholas and Josephina went to bed, Irene still wasn't home, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. She was 26 years old and there could have been something going on at the church or she could have met up with someone. But the next morning, Irene still wasn't home. So her parents went to the McAllen Police Department and reported her missing. As police began their investigation, they spoke to people at the church who were able to confirm that they did see Irene at the church and she was standing in line for confession. But no one could remember seeing her leave the church. Police and a lot of volunteers began searching the area for Irene. And on April 18th, someone located her purse down a dirt road. A little further down the road was one of her shoes, and then the veil that she wore to confession. But there were no signs of Irene. Yet. Irene's story was in the local newspapers, and I don't think I will ever understand why people do this. But Irene's family began receiving phone calls at their home. One woman claimed to be Irene, and she said that she was beaten and kidnapped and that she was at a nearby hotel. But police were able to determine that that was a lie and it was just somebody playing a very cruel prank. Then, on April 21st, Irene's body was found floating in a canal that was several miles from where her purse, shoe, and veil were found. During the autopsy, the medical examiner was able to determine that Irene died from suffocation. Before she died, she was beaten unconscious 
and then sexually assaulted. There was extensive bruising over both of her eyes and on the right side of her face, but they weren't able to collect any evidence from a suspect such as hair or DNA due to her body being in the water. But they have one other clue that was found with Irene's body. It was a photo slide viewer, and according to Irene's family and friends, it wasn't hers. So police begin their interviews with people from the church, Irene's family, friends, ex-boyfriends, sex offenders all around southern Texas. In all, police interviewed about 500 people. Initially, there was a $2,500 reward for the information leading to an arrest in Irene's case. But then local businesses came together and they added an additional $10,000 to the reward money. And it didn't take long before police had a pretty good suspect. Someone that from the outside you wouldn't expect. Not only would you not expect this person to be a suspect, but this person actually reached out to police himself. At the time, John Fite was a 27-year-old priest. But not just any priest. He was the priest who heard Irene's confession the night that she disappeared. And not only was he the one who heard Irene's confession, but he wrote a letter to the police saying that the photo viewer that they found, well, it was his. But he couldn't give a reason for why it was found near her body. John also confirmed with the police that he was the one that took Irene's confession. From interviews with other priests, police learned that John took Irene to the rectory for her confession, which a rectory is a house that's just separated from the church, which the other priest, they found that very unusual. It's not a place that a priest would normally take someone for a confession. Instead, they would listen to it in the church, like everyone else. Initially, John said that he never went to the rectory to hear her confession, but later on, he said that he did. And he claimed that Irene wanted to go to the rectory to speak so that she wasn't overheard by anyone, which the other priests, they felt that if that were a true statement, it was highly inappropriate for John to do that. Reverend Joseph O'Brien was an assistant pastor at the time. On the night of April 16th, he noticed that John had scratches on the back of one of his hands. But John had an explanation for that, of course. He said that while listening to confessions, he nervously played with his glasses often, and that night, he ended up breaking them while he was playing with them. So he drove back to his house to get another pair, but he didn't have his key with him, so he decided to climb up to the second floor balcony to go through into the house. But somehow, during this climb, he scratched the back of his hand on the bricks. So John's story doesn't make much sense. And while there's no physical evidence, there seems to be a lot that points towards him. Another thing, the photo viewer, it had a long cord attached to it which investigators, they believe that that was used to tie Irene up. So, here we have this photo viewer being found with her, that belonged to John. He went out of his way to take her confession in a private house, and he only took hers in the private house that night. And he had injuries to his hand, which weren't very consistent with climbing up a brick wall. But, He's not charged with anything. Because, you know, for it to be a good cover-up, you need someone or something very powerful and influential. Something like the Catholic Church.
If you like true crime stories, then I think you'll like my book One Moment. Or at least, I hope you'll like it. While it's not a true crime story, it does have a mystery and suspense element to the story. The book is available on Amazon as a paperback copy or an ebook, and the link is in the show notes. And what goes so well with reading a book? A good cup of coffee. Recently, I've been drinking coffee from Barney's Coffee and Tea Company. I've been drinking the creamy buttery caramel flavor, which is hands down my favorite so far. And if you'd like to try some coffee from Barney's, the Amazon link to order some is also in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Three weeks before Irene's death, 20-year-old Maria Guerrero was attacked at a different Catholic church in the area. And guess who was visiting that church on the day that Maria was attacked? John Fife. Maria said that she was in the sanctuary, and the only other person in there was a young man with dark-rimmed glasses sitting in the back. She said that he looked like a priest, and she didn't think much about being alone in there because they were inside of a church. As Maria knelt down to pray at the altar, the man grabbed her from behind, placed a rag over her mouth, and she fell to the floor screaming. As she's screaming and fighting back, she was able to bite the man, and when she started screaming for help, he slammed her into the wall. She took off running out of the church, and then he disappeared. After Irene's death, investigators brought a polygraph team from Chicago, John E. Reed and Associates, and at the time, they were considered one of the best companies at administering polygraphs. The founder had literally written the book about polygraphs himself. The test was done in a hotel room at a Holiday Inn, and throughout the test, it showed that John wasn't being truthful. As the exam was going on, the investigator noticed that John also seemed to be enjoying and toying with them about both cases, even to the point of saying that he knew there would be no evidence found in either case. So the examiner played into his arrogance and asked John to come up with his own question to ask him. When John came up with the question, the investigator asked it back to him. Do you believe that it's possible that you may have said something or acted in some way to cause Irene's death? To his own question, John simply answered, yes. But then he backed it up by saying that he didn't kill her but that he spoke to her harshly during her confession. In August, John was indicted on the assault against Maria, where he was charged with assault with intent to rape. In 1961, his trial finished in a mistrial. As the second trial was underway in 1962, John pled no contest to a lesser charge of aggravated assault. His punishment was a $500 fine. Rumors had surfaced that John took this deal to avoid being charged in Irene's murder. In fact, the rumors was that the Catholic Church was going to handle John and their punishment would be far worse than what any court could bring down on him. In 1962, John was sent to a monastery in Missouri where he was counseled by a monk by the name of Dale Teschenary. According to Dale, before he started counseling John, he was told by someone else that John had attacked and killed somebody. When Dale began counseling John, he claimed that John confessed to him that he hurt a young woman and murdered another one. But Dale didn't see this as his job to report it, 
his job was just to counsel John. And John ended up being sent to another program that was for troubled priests in New Mexico. But in the 1970s, he left priesthood altogether and moved to Arizona where he got married and started a family. Meanwhile, Irene's family went on without any answers year after year. Nick and Josefina, they both passed away in their 90s, never seeing anyone charged with their daughter's murder. Texas Monthly reported in 2002 that 42 years after Irene's murder, a detective from the San Antonio Police Department Homicide Division got a phone call one afternoon in April. The man spoke with Detective George Sadler. The man said that he was a former priest, and in 1963, he was counseling another priest at a monastery in Missouri. The caller said that the other priest confessed to attacking and murdering a young woman in the 1960s on Easter weekend. Detective Sailor jotted down some notes, but he wasn't really sure what to believe. Many news headlines across the nation were exposing sexual abuse scandals in Catholic churches. But what was extremely rare was one priest snitching on another. Another thing that threw this off, the caller, who was identified as Dale, he thought that the murder happened in San Antonio, because that's where John was from. Ten miles away from Detective Sadler, a black and white picture of Irene sat on the desk of Texas Ranger Rudy Jeremello. Rudy was assigned to the cold case unit, and Irene's murder was one of his cases. Ten miles away from Detective Sadler, a black and white picture of Irene sat on the desk of Texas Ranger Rudy Jeremello. Rudy was assigned to the cold case unit for the Texas Ranger, and Irene's murder was one of his cases. Sometimes, the way that cases come together are just as much luck as they are hard work. As Thanksgiving approached in 2002, another Texas Ranger went to Detective Sadler's office to pick up some evidence from a completely different case. The two investigators, they began talking, and after a while, the Ranger brought up their cold case unit, mentioning how crazy it was of how old some of the cases were, and how one of them even dated back to the 1960s where a priest was the main suspect. Detective Sailor was shocked at what he was hearing. They began talking about that, and later that night, he was introduced to Rudy. Sailor and Rudy compared their cases. Rudy had all of the old case files in the original investigative reports. Sailor had the new cooperating witness. The investigators went to Oklahoma City to meet with Dale in person. Dale didn't know the name of the victim, only that it was a young woman, and this is what he claimed John told him. John was taking the confession of a young woman. He asked her to come to the church rectory to hear her confession, and after the confession, he attacked and tied her up. He then fondled her breast, placed her in the rectory basement, and then he returned to the sanctuary to take more confessions. Later that night, he moved her to a different location. Then on Easter Sunday, he put a bag over her head and placed her in a bathtub, and he could hear her crying, saying that she couldn't breathe as he walked away. Later that night, John returned, and the young woman was lying dead in the bathtub. He then dumped her body along a canal. While this seemed to be a huge break in the case, things were going to get a lot more complicated. In 2002, Irene's story was back in the newspaper. The district attorney that would be in charge of the case, Rene Guerrera, 
was asked if he planned to pursue an indictment. His quote to the Brownsville Herald was this, Can it be solved? Well, I guess if you believe that pigs can fly, anything is possible. He then went on to say, Why would anyone be haunted by her death? She died. Her killer got away. The Texas Rangers, they didn't just have Dale's confession. They had another priest, Father O'Brien, who also came out saying that John confessed the murder to him. When the Rangers wrapped up their investigation, they sent everything to Guerrera. Initially, he reviewed it and refused to present it to a grand jury, saying that the evidence was just too weak. From there, it was a lot of back and forth. Guerrero said that he couldn't try the case without DNA evidence or a confession. When investigators and other reporters didn't buy into that, he then accused the investigators of telling the witnesses what to say, which the investigators in the case denied doing. A former police detective, Sonny Miller, he gave a statement to the Brownsville Herald which shed a little light on this, basically saying that Guerrero wasn't trying the case because he was Catholic and he was worried what the church would do to him if he tried another priest. But in 2014, Guerrero finally caved in, and he took the case to a grand jury. Well, kind of. He didn't call any witnesses to testify. They never even attempted to subpoena John to testify. In fact, well, I take that back. They did call one witness to testify. The only person that they called to testify was the church secretary. And her involvement in this case really isn't known. But in John's 1961 assault trial, where he was fined $500, she was a witness in that trial too. But she was a witness for the defense. I'm sure it's not a shock to anyone listening. But on June 9th, 2004, the grand jury decided not to indict John. And that's where things sat for the next 10 years. In 2014, Ricardo Rodriguez ran against Guerrero for district attorney. And one of the things he kept saying during his campaign was that he wanted justice for Irene's family. And Ricardo won the election. And I love this next move by Ricardo. After it was announced that he won, Guerrero still had some time in office. Guerrero then came out and he said that he would reopen the case and appoint Ricardo as a special prosecutor for it. And Ricardo said, nope, he wasn't going to reopen the case until he took office in January of 2015, when he had full control over the district attorney's office. And in 2015, that's exactly what he did. Now, things do take some time, but in February of 2016, at 83 years old, John Fight was arrested in Scottsdale, Arizona for the murder of Irene Garza. John was extradited back to McAllen. He appeared in court using the help of a walker. He had stage 3 kidney and bladder cancer. The prosecutor requested a $750,000 bond. The defense attorney requested a $100,000 bond. The judge, he issued a $1 million bond, which was a sign that things were different now. The case then went to trial, which didn't start until November 28, 2017. The judge and jury heard testimony from all the witnesses. On December 7th, John Fight was found guilty of Irene's murder. Now this is a part that I find interesting. 
In the 1961 case, he was given a $500 fine for aggravated assault. After his defense attorney went through this new trial trying to prove that John was innocent, when he approached the jury at the end to try and get John a light sentence, he said that John was a different man than he was in the 60s. Then he asked the jury to give John probation. The man that just walked free for 56 years after a murder, he wanted to get probation. The prosecutor asked for a 57-year prison sentence, which would mean that he would die in prison. And the jury, they sentenced him to life in prison. John remained in a Texas prison until he died from natural causes in February of 2020. After the trial, a family member of Irene's told reporters that pigs are flying tonight.